Welcome to Climate Optimists. I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. You know, I always start this by saying thank you for tuning in, but I was just realizing the other day that there's probably a lot of young people who don't really even know what tuning in means, because I feel like radios with dials where you actually tuned in the frequency of the station haven't been a thing for a little while, and anyway. It's just, just a catchphrase to them. They don't have any refer- frame of reference on what the actual analog nature of tuning anything in is i know it just it just made me feel old that's all well we are old i mean we're not old we're just not young we're we're in the middle somewhere it's crazy to think (laughs) that we're in the middle i know so today we're going to be talking about the built world and the solutions that exist to to lower its greenhouse gas emissions as well as the progress we're making before we get into that did you hear about the eu considering labeling natural gas as sustainable? I did. It's kind of like a less offensive version of clean coal, but it's just greenwashing. It sounds like uh, Austria and Luxembourg, though, were threatening to sue if it goes through, which is good. So maybe our European listeners and other activists in Europe will push hard and and get that thrown out because while we know we need natural gas as a transition fuel, we don't want to be mislabeling it. It's just it's just less bad. It's it's not good. Right. Yeah, it sounds like something we'd do here in the US. I'm surprised we haven't tried it. <laughs> I mean the industry's been trying to get it labeled that way for a sure. long time. But yeah, as we know, unless it's renewable natural gas from, you know, like methane capture at a feedlot or landfill, there's nothing sustainable about it. On a more happy news, um, for our reason for hope the UK investment firm Aviva is pressuring company leaders on climate. They plan to vote to remove board members of uh, companies that are taking part in deforestation. And for those of you that don't know, Aviva manages like the equivalent of 356 billion US dollars in assets. So it's a lot. I mean, that's a big, that's a big chunk. It's a big 356 firm. billion. We should we should pl- plug in Trump soundbite there. Billions and billions. <laughs> he always said that every time he he could never just say a billion like a there's a billion of them. It was always billions and billions. <laughs> I mean, it does add extra emphasis. It's it's a little more impressive. <laughs> it, I mean, ridiculous at the same time, but right. Oh uh, yeah. Well, that's exciting. I yeah. I know Aviva had has already been pushing for you know companies to make more sustainable choices, but it sounds like they're kind of you know ratcheting up the pressure and yeah you know threatening to vote against executive pay deals if the firms are falling short. Mm-hmm. No, it's really cool. Yeah, positive. I mean, we need we need uh, firms like Vanguard and others here in the U.S. to to follow their lead. And I mean, if it was me, you know, if we were talking about lack of follow through or taking climate change seriously, I wouldn't be voting to freeze, you know, pay raises on CEOs. I'd be, you know, voting to put them out on a melting glacier. So, you know. (laughs) The melting glacier. They'll be sitting there with a, just a, them and a polar bear sitting there just sliding along out there and not for very long, probably. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's good to hear though. I think at the end of the day, if there's one language that business speaks its money and yeah. having a huge firm like this turn up the, the pressure is, is a good thing. 
Yeah, I agree. Well, before we introduce today's guest, I thought it might be valuable to share some some stats to kind of underscore the importance of focusing on reducing emissions in our in our buildings. So, for context, buildings account for, you know, over a third of, of global emissions. The number of buildings is is growing. The equivalent of Paris in floor space is added every 5 days, which is just whoa astounding that is crazy and the the majority of that new construction is set to take place in areas in the world without strong energy codes Mm. taken together these three factors show how critical it is to address building emissions if we're going to hit our global climate targets right so before today and doing our research on buildings how much did you uh how much did you know Well, Jason, I don't know if a lot of our listeners know this, but I do work in facilities for the city of Portland. So (laughs) I consider myself somewhat of an expert in this area. Actually, it uh, prepared me to know little to nothing about this, (laughs) (laughs) which is sad. No, I I knew some basic concepts uh, of some of this. So I was actually able to to follow, you know, the interview that's coming up. How about you? Yeah, similarly, I knew that, you know, emissions from the the built sector are were big. And I guess what I didn't appreciate was, you know, some of the progress that's being made, which is obviously a good thing. Right. Well, our guest today is Jeff Rios. Jeff works at building design and engineering firm, AKF, where he works as a, a partner and co-director of their energy and performance team. With a background in engineering, he specializes in increasing energy efficiency within new and existing buildings. He shared his expertise in many places, including at Green Build on well building, at Urban Green on New York City's energy codes, and as a contributing lecturer at Cooper Union. Jeff also serves as a member of the ACEC Metro Region Energy Code Committee, as well as the NYC DOB Energy Code Advisory Committee. It's a lot of acronyms. And if I botched them, Jeff, I apologize. It's a baller. All those <laughs> Jeff, welcome to uh, Climate Optimus. Thanks, Jason. Nice to be here. So we have a question we ask all of our guests to start things out. And so wanted to ask that of you. When you think about efforts to address climate change, you know, in the, in the situation we're in, yeah. what, you know, what gives you some hope? Yeah, sure. Um it's a good question, and I feel like, quite honestly, in the last couple of years, I have a better answer than I did prior to that. I, I would say, like maybe like five or six years ago, my answer is always like, "Oh, I don't know. <laughs> we're trying to do what we can, but we're not getting super far." I feel like in the last couple of years, I've gotten a little more optimistic. For a long time, it's just been like sort of relative savings and what you know, how good can we try to get? And there's the, you know the handful of really showcase projects that have done a great job, but the showcase projects aren't getting the world to you know carbon neutral, right? We're not, that's not right. going to change. That's not going to solve the the climate disaster, right? So it's, I, f- I feel like recently there's legislation that's come out in a few jurisdictions in the U.S. that has really tried to put everybody under the same, in the same boat and in a way that's really meaningful, right? Like focus on carbon and, and trying to push, push that number down and try to push carbon impact down. That's great. So it sounds like in the past you've had, there've been these great examples probably of buildings that are, you know, low carbon, but that's yeah. been more the the exception and the rule. And now you've got some legislation that's got some teeth behind it. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. I mean, for uh, a good portion of my career, you know, I would have a couple of really awesome projects 
that were net zero and all, you know, renewable on site and doing some awesome stuff. But, you know, one one net zero building in a city of thousands of buildings, not, not <laughs> it's not solving the problem, right? Right, um, right. But that, but that city passing legislation that limits emissions for every building in the city and starts to phase out the use of natural gas over time, that is going to help, right? So that's, that's kind of where I'm at. And that's what's been encouraging me in the last couple of years. So I think that's a good segue, you know, for folks who maybe aren't aware of the built world's contribution to carbon emissions. Could you kind of lay that out for us? And, and you know, what are the sources of emissions when we talk about the, the built world? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So, so when I talk about emissions and emissions in the built environment, it's really, it's, it's a couple of things. Primarily it's sort of operational carbon, which is, you know, you know, at your house, like all the electricity you use, all the gas you burn, all the fuel oil you burn, whatever your sources of energy are. Um, all of those sources have a, a relative carbon um, that's emitted as a result, right? It depends on where you live and where you get your power from for electricity. Any fossil fuel you burn is pretty straightforward, right? You burn that, you emit, you emit carbon. So that's operational. That's a big piece of it. The other side of it is um, that's increasingly getting more and more attention is what's called embodied carbon. And that's that's sort of the carbon that goes into the concrete and steel and wood and chipboard and everything else that makes up our buildings, right? So that those two combined are a very significant contribution to the the carbon that's emitted in the world. I, I think globally, the number is on the order of thirty to forty percent of total carbon emissions, and one of those two sources. So that's you know that's a huge number. Some something on the order of ten to fifteen percent is embodied, and the rest of that is from operational. So it's it's a big number, and then as as you get more and more dense, so like I I'm personally I live and work in New York City primarily, and in New York City the number is closer to seventy percent comes from buildings, and that's due to just due to us having a lot of buildings and not as much transit. So it it's it's a big impact globally, and you know, and depending on where you live, cities are it's it's even higher contribution. Yeah, you know, I hadn't, and we were talking about this a little bit before we started the interview, but yeah. the the differences you might have depending on how, you know, rural or densely populated things are. So I, I think that leads kind of naturally into the next question, which is like, okay, given these sources of emissions you're talking about, what are sort of the menu of solutions that exist um, for making the world, you know, the built world less carbon intensive? Yeah. Um, that's, you know, that's obviously the question, right? That That's sort of the, the big, <laughs> that's the big question. And, you know, so over the course of my career, it's been, I think I've had an, any, any number of answers to that. And it, it's, it starts with, you know, the very basics of, you know, what's your, what's your building envelope look like? How much insulation do you have? You know, what kind of windows do you have? What, you know, what's the heat loss through that, the skin load all the way through to, you know, what's your, your mechanical systems, your, your plumbing system, you know, your, how you're heating your hot water, there's efficient ways to do all that stuff. There's a variety of different, you know, system types. I think these days, and this is related to my answer earlier, sort of like what's encouraging me or making me hopeful. There's really been increasingly, I think nationally, a focus on carbon itself and really kind of pushing, trying to get fossil fuels out of the, out of the, the industry, right? So it's a really getting towards a, an efficient electric heating system. You know, the buildings and, you know, everybody that has a house knows that most of the stuff you use in your building is electricity, right? Everything, you know, your your cooling system is likely electric. Or, you know, you charge your cell phone, you know, turn on the TV, that's all electricity. But for historically, for most of the U.S., our heating source has been, you know, some sort of fossil fuel. And sim- very similar to the conversation that, you know, happens around cars and the automobile industry and transit, Pushing towards an electric solution is is long term kind of where we need to go if we want to truly be carbon neutral. Now that's going to take a long time, but 
recently in my world, I've been seeing a push towards that and in a, in a push in, in like a real way. It's no longer like a theoretical conversation. I, there's buildings we're doing now that are doing all electric heating in you know, northeastern climates where it's cold. It's a complicated solution from a technology standpoint. And really it's, it's changing the way we used to do buildings, sure. but it's simple. It's simple in terms of like, well, what's the goal to heat electrically? efficiently right. that's the goal okay we can we can do that we don't have to play a lot of games with you know like relative baselines and, and savings and, and trimming energy here and there yeah that does that does make it simple when you can kind of put it in those two buckets so you know be more efficient in how you use your energy and and go electric absolutely so i've mentioned some of this legislation that that's kind of driving this and in new york city there's kind of two things that have come out in the last couple of years the first is just in the building's emissions limit so every building above twenty-five thousand square feet has to um, report emissions. And if you exceed a, a limit that's been set by the city, you get, a, you get a fine essentially, right? So that's obviously driving a lot of conversations around, do we get a fine? What's our projection look like? Are we okay? When do we need to do something? That kind of thing. Um, the second legislation that's come out in the last month or two months now is the end of December um, is going forward starting in 2024, the beginning of 2024 and, and for lower, lower rise buildings. And then in 2027 for higher rise buildings, no new buildings can get a gas hookup for, for heating in wow. New York City. There's exceptions to that. So like, you know, healthcare facilities is a little bit different, but it's it's pretty sweeping, right? Now that's going to help the conversation for sure. Um, but what I've seen so far is anytime somebody's doing something already. So like if you're doing a big renovation, you're doing a new building, you're, you know, you're, you're in the act of doing a project. This is a primary discussion point, right? Like how do we do this? What do we do to address this? Do we do all electric? How do we do it? Let's make it happen. And it's happening. I have yet to see a whole lot of buildings that are just existing buildings um, embark on a project just to address these laws yet. But I think that's coming in the future, right? As boilers die and need to be replaced, as things, you know, it, we are going to see it happening in, in lots of buildings. Gotcha. So that's that's helpful. So I think you answered, in a way, one of my questions, which was like, what's the trigger, right? So if I own a big high rise in New York City and maybe I'm not, you know, climate conscious, what's going to, What's going to be the the stick or the carrot that convinces me to to move to electric heat and make my building more efficient? And it sounds like if my building's horribly inefficient, there's going to be penalties that help motivate me. And then at a certain juncture, I'm assuming if I have my natural gas system that uses a boiler and that dies, then that potentially creates a conversation as well. Yeah, that's that's what I've been seeing for sure. And the, the this most significant fines are probably not coming for most owners till 2030. That's this again. That's that's a specific New York City conversation, but um, we are seeing people start to plan for that now because it's it's phased. Gotcha. So, so I think having a better understanding, you know, as you've articulated of kind of like what the what solutions exist, you know, both getting more efficient and you know moving to electric. What's you know where should the bar be set? What level of efficiency should we be aiming for in buildings? You know, is it like an energy usage per, per square foot? And are there standards out there like, you know, some may, folks may be familiar with LEED or Energy Star that that really should be sort of adopted as a minimum? So that's a great question. And it's a difficult answer. I think it does depend on a number of factors. I think sort of the, the older ways of thinking about this, and which, which are, you know, LEED, um, Energy Star, and EUI, which EUI is, you know, energy usage, um, energy use intensity, which is the energy per square foot per year. That, that Those are all really good metrics and benchmarks to set. In addition to that, in much of the country, just standard energy codes, honestly, the, the minimum energy codes have really advanced quite a bit 
the reductions from 2010, which is you know what what many lead buildings are are kind of held to, the reduction over that time is is staggering in terms of how much the just the baseline energy code minimum building has come down. So I think increasingly those building standards and energy codes have have become more and more stringent in a way that is impacting all the buildings getting built and and they're making them efficient to the point that if we do start transitioning towards a fossil fuel free heating solution that's a pretty good building and and kind of setting us up on a pathway i feel towards towards a solution that we can have buildings that are that are really not um major carbon emitters it's exciting i mean exciting to think about that that that's at least on the horizon. So I guess maybe as a follow-on, if you're looking at your crystal ball, <laughs> when can we expect uh, buildings to be kind of net zero, when we think of net zero buildings, become sort of the, the standard? Yeah. So so first off, it depends on what you mean by net zero, because that's a term that gets used very frequently in the building world. I feel like what it used to mean, or what it used to mean to me anyway, was net zero energy on-site, which was a building that had a bunch of renewable resources installed on the building, you know, solar panels on the roof, um, et cetera, and could generate as much every year as it used. That's not going to be something that happens with every building in the country, right? We're just not right. going to see that, right? For lots of reasons, right? So increasingly, I'm thinking of net zero as net zero impact. In order to be net zero, it needs to be entirely electric getting any resource, whether it produces itself on the building or it receives it from the grid that is renewable or largely renewable, right? But that's the solution to me, right? Like a net zero building in the future is going to be one that can be zero if the grid is clean, because that's the only way it's going to be at scale. And I, you know, that's starting to be something we're, we're designing and building now. When does that happen everywhere? I think between now and 2030, most places in the country are like feeling it out and starting to figure out what it looks like. And if I'm, again, this is just, this is crystal ball. This is not, not, don't, (laughs) I'm not going to hold you to it. it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But, uh, you know, between 2030 and 2040, I think this is really going to be what, what happens. Like, I think this is going to start happening at mass scale because between, you know, the next five to 10 years, it's going to be figured out and certain locations are going to make it mandatory. Others are going to start incentivizing it. It's going to start happening. The grid's going to start getting cleaner in most of the country. And then the following 10 years, you know, 2030, 2040, it's going to really, it's going to really be rolling out um, at larger scale, I think. So kind of, you know, fast forwarding then, I'm envisioning a building that is very efficient. It might have some on-site, you know, generation technology. So like, you know, some solar panels on the roof, depending on where it is. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, but then ultimately it's, not using fossil fuels, it's not using natural gas to heat it, and the electricity that it is using is coming from a grid that, you know, fingers crossed, is 100% carbon free. And so that that enables the building to be, in what we're kind of talking about, sort of a, a net zero um, emitter. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the that's the sort of pathway to a future net zero for everybody. So you know, as a follow-on to that. And I'm thinking, you know, you're talking about these changes that are coming. If you could, you know, sort of had the power um, to to sort of make these decisions, what would you say do we need to really kind of accelerate, you know, this conversion um, from a, you know, built infrastructure of where we are to one that's high efficiency and and uh, and green? Yeah. 
Um, I mean, I think it's it's a combination of uh, maybe maybe it's two primary factors, right? It's it's the codes and the legislation, which has started to happen in certain areas of the country. I, you know, I've, I've mentioned New York a few times. Boston has similar um, emissions targets and limits uh, that are rolling out on buildings up there um, for existing buildings. Really, the, the existing building legislation is pretty pretty meaningful, right? Because it's you can do all you wanted with new buildings, but by 2040, a lot of the buildings we have today are still going to be around. So if you don't address them, right. you're not you're not going to address the problem in in whole. So so it's legislation, um, which which is a combination of code, but code generally only impacts the building if you're if you're doing something in the building, right? You live in your house, unless you do anything, nobody's asking you about building codes, right? Unless you unless you right. want to put on addition or do whatever, right? That's that's the case generally speaking. So it's a combination of building code as well as just you know legislation that's really going to start you know, tracking and, 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 and looking at emissions that for all the buildings that are out there today. Um, so that, that's one piece. The second piece is, you know, really to get this stuff to move quicker, uh, incentives are going to, are going to need to play a role and that's going to be incentives for building owners, um, homeowners, even if you're comparing, if you, if you're doing a building now and you're looking at putting in a boiler versus a all electric heat pump system, heat pump costs more, right? So incentives are going to play a role, I think, especially in these, these, these you know, next five to 10 years. And and we're seeing that there's there's definitely a real push to it. Um, there's been incentives in much of the country for energy savings for a long time, um, federal and state driven, and and they've been effective. And I and I I've seen recently um, a real push towards carbon being the metric. Okay. Specifically targeting all electric in in New York, there's very lucrative incentives these days for for heat pump solutions. Um, so it's it's becoming it's becoming attractive for folks to do it. It's not just because they want to or they need to do something anyway. It's it's like, hey, I, we can get a, a, a good chunk of change here to, to to convert this. And it's making that conversation a lot easier with owners. And, you know, anybody who is, uh, you know, a homeowner can probably relate to, you know, incentives, whether local, state or federal, like you said, where it's like, hey, I get a, I get a credit for buying a more efficient appliance or, you know, putting in more efficient windows how what's the incentive structure look like for commercial buildings i mean it sounds like some it, it exists i mean are there yeah. is it something that needs to be ramped up more i know like in the build back better bill or not build back better i know in the bipartisan infrastructure bill there's you know money set aside for um residential stuff it, right. is there you know kind of equivalent savings available for if i'm a commercial building owner and i want to yep. be green to make that transition yeah, there definitely is, um, and it, you know, it depends on the location you're in. Much of that is state-driven, so it depends on which state you're in. The function of it's not terribly different than what you might see as a residential customer. Most of it is driven by utility companies and, and sort of programs that are paid for by, there's a little line item often in your utility bill, right, for, that goes to this fund that sort of incentivizes stuff. There's typically different programs for residential and commercial style buildings, sure. but they often are done in parallel. The, it's infrequent, at least in many of the areas that I work, where you wouldn't have a similar commercial grade incentive um, that you might have for a residential. So um, all those, those heat pump incentives, that's something you can get for your house and also for your million square foot office building. They're different programs, but it's the same kind of stuff. So we've been focusing a lot on you know changing codes and I think a lot around reducing the carbon associated with a building's operations. And I know in the you know, the beginning you mentioned, you know, embodied carbon. And so I guess I'm wondering, you know, when it comes to like the steel and the cement, which folks are aware, you know, globally producing steel and cement are big sources of emissions. 
what role can the building industry play in, you know, helping green those materials, right? Re- reduce the, you know, the carbon yeah. content, if you will. Yeah. So that's, that's a great question. It's, it's been an increasing area of focus um, in, in my world in the built environment for, for a while. And particularly in the last few years, to be quite honest, I'm, I'm not the expert in that. I mean, this tends to be, this is an interesting question, right? So, so I'm a, an engineer and engineers generally tend to focus on the systems in the building and those relate very directly to the operational energy, right? They also have embodied carbon in them, but it's harder to track, right? The metal in a, a boiler, a heat pump, and the you know all the stuff that goes into that is is harder to track than is concrete, wood, steel that goes into the building the structure of a building. So in, often architects and structural engineers are more focused on embodied than than our folks like myself. That said, increasingly embodied has been been something that's been looked at um, across all trades. So including you know systems engineering as well. Um, I will say. There's a, there's a few things that have been done um, over the last 20 years that, that have helped and continue to help things like recycled content in various different building materials, you know, recycled steel, concrete with slag in it. That's not steel. That's still structurally sound, um, stuff like that. That's, that's been increasingly uh, important. Recently, one of the changes we've seen um, in the industry is really the allowance for what's called mass timber there used to be limits on how high you could build with mass timber or what the type of structure you could build with mass timber. And those have been sort of changing over the last few years where you build taller with mass timber than you used to be able to, and, and you build a larger commercial building than you might've in the past. Um, mass timber is, is less, is typically less of an embodied carbon contributor than would be a steel or, or concrete building. So that that's been changing. And that that's been something that I think folks are starting to pay more attention to um, than they used to. And when you say mass timber, is there, are we envisioning, you know, classic like rough cut lumber or are we talking about stuff that is? No, it's more advanced than that. Yeah. Yeah. It's more advanced than that. It's, it's, it's a very, and again, this is not my area of expertise, but yeah, it's, (laughs) it's kind of an engineered timber, right? It's, it's made of wood, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's fire rated. It's, it's, it's structurally rated. It's, it's, it's pretty advanced. Actually, it's pretty cool stuff. And there's, you know, more and more buildings like that happening around the country, but actually probably much more in the uh, Northwest than in my area of the world. Right. So. Well, no, that's exciting to know. I mean, it could be a, you know, more of a disruptor. Well, I could, uh, you know, go on talking with you about buildings for hours and <clears throat> I'm sure put our listeners to sleep, but um, <laughs> w- wanted to just thank you for, you know, spending the time to come on and, and share your expertise and, and, you know, and educate us a little bit on, on the built world and, you know, some of the exciting advancements there. I know, um, you know, as people are thinking about climate solutions, you know, we look to the, the structures that we live and work in, and it's good to know that there's progress being made there. So, yeah, thanks for coming on and uh, appreciate you sharing with us. Absolutely. Yeah, it was fun. Thoughts on the, the interview with Jeff? I really dug it. I was interested to hear about mass timber, which was a term that I really didn't understand and wasn't super familiar with. But I think everybody's seen it. You'll see it in a lot of construction where you see like the the large support beams in a building, like an auditorium or something like that, where it looks like just a bunch of single two by fours that are like laminated together. But that stuff is a really cool product. And as as Jeff mentioned, could be a real big help because it is less carbon intensive than concrete and steel and it sounds like they're 
beginning to try to find more high rise type applications than it historically has been used for. So yeah. Also, you know, heat pump technology seems to improved to, you know, kind of cover uh, a wider swath of the northern climates. I thought that that was really cool. And you've shoot, you've got heat pumps at your house, don't you? Yeah, at, I did. I converted house. over, and for the benefit of folks who aren't, you know, super comfortable with, you know, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning terms, <laughs> I mean, a heat pump is basically a, a piece of equipment that that runs on electricity similar to an air conditioner, except it can provide both heat and cooling. And, you know, it would replace, as you know, Jeff was saying, what would normally be natural gas furnaces. So mm-hmm. instead of having to have that, that natural gas furnace and then have standalone, you know, air conditioning units, you now have one piece of equipment that, that serves both functions. Right. Yeah. That's a good way, a good way of putting it. I also liked his point too about zero emission buildings. And I think it is important to note that a lot of those claims are going to be based on whether or not you're going to be able to get green, clean power off the grid. You know, the other, you know, one of the major takeaways I took from what Jeff was talking about was that we really need to push for, you know, really substantial incentives to get building owners to, you know, build with this in mind in new construction, but also, you know, to kind of retrofit older buildings because, and that's really one of the things I would say I noticed too from from being in the facilities business is there's a pretty big disparity between the efficiency of newer construction and some of this older stuff. But, you know, there's good news on the horizon. I mean, the number of countries with, with building energy uh, codes is increasing. In 2015, there were 62. In 2021, there were 80. And 43 of those have mandatory codes. So- we're getting there. Obviously, you know, like everything else we talk about, we have a ways to go, but we're moving forward. So yeah, it was really cool. What did you think about what Jeff had to say? I mean, I was glad that I decided not to base all my knowledge on building operations on what I learned from you. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I I thought he did a great job. I was encouraged to hear that not only do we have, you know, countries that are taking lead on improving their codes, but you have places like New York City and Boston that are making, just making the decision to say, hey, all new construction is going to have to be electric. And when right. you have cities on that scale making those kind of decisions, I think it acts as a, as a forcing function, you know, for others to adopt. So right. I, I thought that was great. It blew my mind a little bit when he mentioned New York. And I think, what did he say? It was like 75%. Yeah, I think it was 70% of their of their, you know, in essence, their carbon emissions in the city are the built infrastructure. Yeah, it, it makes sense, right? I mean, there's just, they have so many huge buildings there and their transportation system is more efficient. They probably have a lot less cars running around just because it's so impractical, you know, impractical. <laughs> I think it's impractical. Yeah. But, yeah. But I liked impractical. I mean, I thought, yeah, a new... impractical. I, I'm just creating new words on the fly. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I I was really blown away by that. And when you're in that situation, yeah, there's definitely a lot of gains that you can, you can get to by improving buildings. Yeah. I, I get the sense that we're, you know, we're on the right trajectory. Things need to, you know, accelerate. And, you know, after the interview, I went out and, you know, did some additional reading and 
stumbled into the Global Alliance for Buildings and Construction, which is a UN environment program. And they do like a, you know, an annual report. And their prognosis is we're, we're not on track to reach Paris, but, mm. you know, it's encouraging to see more and more countries adopting energy codes into their into their building codes. Yeah. And I guess there's a number of African countries that are in the process of making that transition. Fairly long list that includes like, you know, Cameroon, Ghana, Kenya, Tanzania. So, you know, back to what you were saying, it's like, we're not there yet, clearly, mm-hmm. but it it seems like the momentum is in the right direction. And, you know, given, given how long a, a building stays out there, I mean, yeah, you really want to do it right the first time. Very true. One of the things I, you know, read in that uh, global status report that was also interesting was they were talking about where the built infrastructure is, is set to grow. And, mm-hmm. and again, this underscores the need for updating codes, but it said, 82% of the population growth by 2030 is set to be added in areas with either voluntary or no building energy codes. You know, the other the other thing that sort of uncovered in that same report, and you know, I think Jeff may have hinted at this a little bit, but that, you know, climate change is really only going to magnify our energy use in buildings. You know, hotter temperatures are going to lead to, you know, more air conditioning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the International Energy Agency actually projects that between now and 2050, the number of AC units will more than double. So I think right now wow. there's about 2 billion in the world and it's set to be 5.5 billion by 2050. So Whoa. clearly not only do we need to be improving codes, but we need to be improving you know standards for these you know pieces of equipment, right? And then I guess my final kind of takeaway was just that you know embodied carbon, that that really could be transformational for other sectors you know i mean you you mentioned mass timber but i even think about you know cement and steel which are huge sources of emissions and we know are going to be emissions that are hard to get rid of and you know if you see a future where you have you know nations municipalities saying hey you know a certain percent of the materials we get have to be you know carbon free or low carbon or whatever that is mm-hmm. that all of a sudden it creates a market that enables you to fund the technologies you need to to help those industries become carbon free, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess in conclusion, I think listening to Jeff, I felt hopeful about you know the momentum that's taking place in the building sector, the fact that you know these um, cool you know net zero buildings are no longer just on the periphery that you have building codes becoming or requiring you know buildings to be more and more efficient and in turn that driving a built environment that is where we want it to be going in terms of, of carbon emissions. Yeah, agreed. So as always, this always leads to, you know, what can we do as individuals? And I don't think trying to understand building code is going to be, uh, <laughs> is going to be super advantageous. And, you know, I'm thinking about it with this episode I'm trying to figure out what could be a value I think there's sort of two things. The first, and we've talked about this before, but the Build Back Better bill that got stalled, you know, around the holidays, the version version that passed out of the House has a lot of great climate provisions and within that, a lot of incentives related to building. And so first opportunity, take some time to send a message to your 
your senator, encouraging them to revisit, you know, build back better, trying to find a version that can, you know, that can pass. Right. I think the second opportunity is really kind of a personal one, which is if you don't live in a brand new home or a home that's recently, you know, been upgraded to make it more efficient is to, you know, get a home energy audit. You can generally find resources through your local, you know, energy provider. And a lot of times they're even free, but, you know, you can have somebody come out, they'll take a look at your house and be able to tell you where, you know, your biggest opportunities are for improvement in terms of being more efficient. Sweet. When it comes to both these opportunities, we'll have more information in the show notes for this episode on our website. And I think that's a wrap for today. Thanks, as always, for for tuning in. (laughs) Come back next week for more Climate Solutions, Reasons for Hope, and Ways Each of Us Can Make a Difference. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimus.co. That's climateoptimus.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimus Podcast. Mm-hmm.